I took an airplane from uh, Chicago to New York City, wearing like a tie and a suit, right? Like I look like an insurance salesman or something. But I rang from the airport and he picked up the phone again. And I said, Mr. Newman, this is Greg Heisler. And he said, why are you calling? And I said, well, actually, I'm at uh, LaGuardia Airport. I just landed and I was hoping and he literally went, Jesus Christ, that kind of thing. <laughs> and he and his wife ran the studio and he literally held his hand over the phone the way people did it back then. Yeah. And he said, it's the kid. I heard him <laughs> say that. And she said, what's wrong with you? Have him come over. <laughs> Gregory Heisler there on his tenacious pursuit of legendary portrait photographer Arnold Newman. Much more to come from Greg in just a minute. Well, hello and welcome to Viewfinders. This is the podcast where we discuss the art, craft and profession of photography with some of the finest practitioners from around the world. I'm your host, Graham Dargie. I'm a professional photographer based in Aberdeen, Scotland, and I'm so excited to revisit this classic conversation with one of my all-time photography heroes. So stick around, you're in for a real treat. I've been really enjoying delving into some older episodes these past couple of months, but I'm delighted to say that new episodes start on Thursday the 9th of March when my guest will be none other than Joe McNally. While today's guest, Greg Hauser, might be my favourite photographer of all time, Joe McNally is certainly the one who's had the most influence on my work, so I hope you can check that out, dropping on Thursday the 9th of March 2023. Subscribe or follow the show on your favourite platform so you don't miss that one. So exciting. Okay, no long intro today. I want to get straight to it. Just a quick reminder that you can connect with me on Instagram at Viewfinders Podcast. You can also visit the Viewfinders website where you can find all 50 episodes of the show, find out about upcoming live events, or if you're stuck on your photography journey, book yourself on a one-to-one coaching call with me. Check out viewfinderslive.com to find out everything about the show. Okay, today, a conversation I had in July 2021 with Gregory Heisler. Greg has photographed Bill Clinton, George H. Bush, George W. Bush, Mikhail Gorbachev, Yasser Arafat, Michael Bloomberg, Bruce Springsteen, Chinua Achebe, Denzel Washington, Mick Jagger, Al Pacino, Joni Mitchell, Muhammad Ali, Carl Lewis, Bill Gates, Anne Bono, and more for publications like Life Magazine, GQ, Esquire, Rolling Stone, ESPN, and the New York Times Magazine. Greg has shot over 70 covers for Time Magazine, and he's also photographed major advertising campaigns for clients including American Express, Ford, Guinness, and Nike. Gregory is the recipient of the Alfred Eisenstadt Award and the Leica Medal of Excellence. His book, 50 Portraits, is one of the all-time great volumes on the subject of portrait photography, giving a sharp yet human insight into the process of making editorial photographs of some of the most well-known faces on the planet. With the nuanced touch of a true craftsman, Greg has created an impressive body of work without leaning on a trademark style, look or gimmick. Greg holds nothing back in this conversation, from what he learned with working with his hero Arnold Newman, his approach on a shoot, some of his favourite cameras and so much more. This chat was one of the absolute highlights of my photography journey. I hope you enjoy it too. Here's my conversation with Gregory Heisler. 
Gregory Heiser, welcome to the Viewfinders Photography Podcast. How are you? I'm good. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. No, you're more than welcome. Um, I started the podcast last year and I made a list of people that I would really, really want to talk to. And you were on that list. And none of them wanted to do it. So then you started calling me. <laughs> yeah, they weren't available. But uh, people people like Howard Schatz were on it and your name was on it. And I'm so excited to talk to you today. Um, I actually was at a seminar with you a few years ago in London. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe it was 2013 or something. Mm -hmm. And um, Joel McNally was talking and Zachary oh, sure. were, were talking and David Hobby was talking. Mm -hmm. You were last on. It was electric, Greg. It was just fantastic. And ever since then, I've been so into your work and I really appreciate how you go about it. Because what I love about your work is everything that you do seems to serve and elevate the subject. Um, whichever way you shoot, you shoot in different ways with different equipment, um, studio locations, indoors, outdoors, low-key, high-key, color, black and white, all kinds of stuff but it's never really about the techniques. It's never about you Im imposing yourself on somebody. It always seems to be about the subject. And I think that says something about you really, because you just seem to be very respectful of, of the people you photograph and the, the process of doing it. I, and it elevates everybody involved, even you. Um, so I'm really, really excited to talk to you today. And I've got a couple of things I wanna pick up on, but before we get into the work, um, I like to go back to the start. You're in Syracuse, is that right? Yes, yeah, Syracuse, New York. It's about four hours north of New York City. Okay. But I was Did... in New York for like almost 40 years, a long time. Right. Before and I came here. So are you a New Yorker or where did you grow up? I grew up actually in Chicago, but I spent all my adult conscious life in New York City. Okay. I actually moved yeah. there in 1975 to work as an apprentice for the great portrait photographer Arnold Newman. Mm -hmm. And he was my idol beyond all mortal men, basically. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it's kind of a funny story, but I, I really pursued him. I was just 21 years old and I sent him a, a letter, which is what people did then. Mm -hmm. And it just was the letter that you sent, like, Mr. Newman, you know, I've admired you for years and I'd work for you for free and that kind of stuff. You know? mm -hmm. And a week later, I actually got a response from him. Right? I got a letter on his letterhead addressed to me and I opened it and he did not like to an assistant from out a kid, you know, like no one would do that now. Nobody mm -hmm. would do that as a dear Mr. Heisler, not even Greg, dear Mr. Heisler. It was, I still have it. Like, thank you for your uh, inquiry. Um, uh, much as I'd like to be encouraging, unfortunately we do not hire people from out of town. It's too risky for us, you know, best of luck, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So as far as I was concerned, and he had a signature on a piece of paper, you know? And so I immediately called him because I thought, oh, this is great. I have a letter. And so I phoned him up on the phone, rang him up. And uh, he answered the phone, go to the studio, <laughs> Mr. Newman. And he said, speaking. And I said, why? This is Greg Heisler. I just got your letter. He literally interrupted and said, I thought I made myself perfectly clear, <laughs> right? It was a quick conversation. And I hung up. And again, I was like naive. You know, and I thought, oh, we have a relationship now. <laughs> you know, <laughs> seriously, you know. So that was on like a Friday. And based on that encouragement, on Monday, I took an airplane from uh, Chicago to New York City. First flight, 6 30 in the morning. I got in at like 9 30, wearing like a tie and a suit, 
right? Like I look like an insurance salesman or something, but I rang from the airport and he picked up the phone again. And I said, Mr. Newman, this is Greg Heisler. And he said, why are you calling? And I said, well, actually I'm at uh, LaGuardia airport. I just landed and I was hoping and he literally went, Jesus Christ, that kind of thing. <laughs> I said, well, I know you're very busy, but if there's any way I could pop in for just a minute, you know, and he and his wife ran the studio and he literally held his hand over the phone the way people did it back then. Yeah. And he said, it's the kid. I heard him <laughs> say that. And she said, what's wrong with you? Have him come over. <laughs> so I hopped in a taxi, went there and, uh, he looked at my portfolio, which is no big deal. I mean, I was, you know, starting out, but I was a good printer and that was part of what he needed. And he said, well, I would never normally do this, but if you can stay the night, you know, we'll try you in the dark room tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So I literally slept on a park bench that night. Like I didn't think I was staying overnight. I didn't have any money or anything really. Mm -hmm. So I came in, slept on the park bench, went and see him, made some prints and he hired me. That was it. And so mm -hmm. I stayed, I lived in the studio for a week on a couch when then went home, got clothes, came back and that was it. And I was there ever since. And really he opened the door for me in New York city. If he had been in Nebraska, I'd probably still be in Nebraska. Yeah. It wasn't like dreams of New York city or anything like that. It was really him. It was mm -hmm. him and his work. And, um, and for anybody who's not familiar with his work, you should look it up. I mean, he, sort of invented a whole new way of making portraits. Like people call it environmental portraiture. You know, you photograph someone in an environment that actually conveys a sense of who they are, something about them. Um, and that uh, really changed portrait photography. So to have the opportunity to actually work with him was an amazing thing. And that's really, that was the beginning of it all for me. Mm -hmm. And so you said that you'd pursued him. So he was obviously was a, a big deal to you. What was your photography like at the time? I know you were just a young guy, but were you trying to do an Arnold Newman when you were out with your camera or what was that like? I wasn't even sophisticated enough to dream of something like that. Honestly, I was, I'm just being honest. I was not like I had wrestling pictures from high school, from the yearbook, you know, the newspaper. And I had a really nice picture of my dad in there. My father's a really nice portrait of him. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting with portraiture because it, like you're saying about the respectful thing, it's even when I work with students and they photograph each other, I have to make up a story. Like, let's say they're taking a picture of you, Graham, right now. It's like, you could be a tech mogul. You could be a film director. Do you know what I mean? And I said, when you're photographing your friend, make up a story in your mind because who's to say? Do you know what I mean? Like half the actors or famous people out there, if you pass them in the street, you wouldn't even know them, Yeah. right? So people would look at this picture of my father and they would say, Oh, who is that? I know I've seen him in some movie. What, who is that? So it's actually just my father. But mm -hmm. he, I think because of how he's photographed, he had like a real presence in the picture, you know? And so there was that kind of picture, but really it was not, I wouldn't say it was an impressive portfolio. Mm -hmm. I think he needed somebody cheap who could make prints. I <laughs> 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 really yeah. So that's my guess. I don't think he said like, wow, this Heisler kid, he's got potential. Mm -hmm. I think I sort of filled filled a hole that needed to be filled honestly mm -hmm. how did you find that phase then uh, working with arnold newman was that obviously you must have learned a lot but did, was he, he was he kind of a gruff kind of character i've, I've got that impression on his good days he was gruff okay <laughs> <laughs> he like he, it was just him honestly i grew up with parents who were really nice i was very fortunate and he was a yeller he was 
you know, instead of just saying, oh, excuse me, Greg, can you move that light over there? He'd be, how many times do I have to tell you? You know, it was like that kind of thing. And mm-hmm. I was just rattled by it, completely rattled. And it was very stressful. And I, and again, he didn't mean anything by it, but I left there after about 10 months. I was getting an ulcer. I was making it crazy. Right. Yeah. Um, but the fact is, like, the assistant who trained me there and the assistant who followed me, they were both there for, like, eight years or so, a long time. Mm-hmm. And I was complaining, not complaining, but saying, God, this has been so tough. And it's like, ah, you know, don't pay any attention to it. That's just him, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. So and we would never sit down and he wouldn't say, Greg, let me teach you photography. Let's have a conversation. What's your view of portraiture? It was mm-hmm. nothing like that. It, it was by just watching. And also at the end of the day, when he would go home, I would go through the files of all the pictures that were filed. And that was like getting a PhD, really. I mean, it, it was just amazing to look at prints and actually to hold the negatives of these pictures that in photography of a very well-known images. He did a portrait of the, um, of the composer Igor Stravinsky in 1946. That's kind of like, was a breakthrough portrait in photography altogether. No one had taken pictures like that at all. And so I printed that like a, an addition for exhibitions and that kind of thing. So it was, even though it was stressful and even though it was brief, it had an unbelievably lasting impression, made an unbelievably lasting impression. And he and I weren't buddies. I literally was too scared to even pick up the phone and call him for like five years, really. Mm-hmm. But we met again because we were both teaching at a workshop at the same time. And I was so worried. I thought he was going to scream at me in front of everybody. Yeah. But the truth is, he could not have been nice. He's like, Greg, we're so proud of you. You're like a son to us. We've been watching your work. And I just about wept. I mean, it was yeah. so, it really was very meaningful. So from that point on, we definitely kept in touch. And um, there was a book published about a year and a half ago uh, called Arnold Newman 100. It was on his centenary, would, would have been his 100th birthday. And it was 100 images. It's fantastic. And they asked me to write a, a forward afterward to the book, mm-hmm. which I'm sure if he saw it, he'd be like, what the hell did you call that kid for? Get like a museum <laughs> director. He, you know, he just was working in the dark room. Back at the, yeah. But. I feel like I have a very unusual perspective on his work because obviously we're both portrait photographers. I watched him make portraits. I printed his portraits. He made a portrait of me for Kodak, like an actual portrait. So I was on the other side of the camera with him. Mm-hmm. And it was, and all the way around, it was sort of this three-dimensional experience that I don't think anybody else has really had with him. Yeah. All the way. And also subsequently, many years later, like, we photographed for the same magazines. And I actually ran into him in Tunisia, of all places. We were both making portraits of Arafat. I was shooting it for a cover of Time magazine, and he was shooting it for Life magazine. Right. And I saw him outside the hotel, and instead, Greg, it's so nice to see you. He literally said, what the hell are you doing here? <laughs> I said, well, I'm here to photograph Arafat. And he said, well, that can't be. I'm here to photograph Arafat. <laughs> it was that kind of thing. But ultimately, we had a very, very kind of... Um, parallel and uh warm relationship mm-hmm. and i really like endlessly grateful truly i mean you know yeah i thought so i've got his book uh, at work here um, yeah fantastic uh, isn't it great it's it is fantastic and i've got your book here that's a good I, one yeah and I, I i saw his picture of arafat and i, I didn't realize you'd done it at the same time actually yeah um, so from this perspective from where you're at now 
looking back, what can you say that you really learned there that transferred into your own photography? It, it would be a lot. A really important thing was the only thing that mattered was the picture, really. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like a groovy, cool place to work. I mean, I have friends who worked in fashion studios and they were dating models and it was great. And, you know, I mean, really flying to Paris or what, on a beach in the Caribbean. I was in the dark room, you know, smelling fixer all the time and, mm -hmm. and getting yelled at. But he, he was like, he wasn't a cool person. He wasn't somebody who, you know, went partying with celebrities. Nothing. It was really just about the picture. Mm -hmm. And his cameras weren't fancy. There were these old beat up Nikons and his lights were all hot lights, continuous quartz lights. He didn't even use a flash at all. To him, a flash was like one of those things on the camera, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he said, ah, he just bang the light in there. You know, he, he just assumed that with, a, with tungsten lights, it, the exposures were long. Like he would do it with something nobody would do. Now he would do a portrait of somebody with a 5.4 camera on a tripod. He did my picture and it was a one second exposure, right? Mm -hmm. So he would have people hold his famous line that he would always say is, don't move or I'll kill you. I'll murder you. <laughs> don't move. And, and people held still, you know, and if you notice in his pictures, there's no like big expressions or people jumping or any people are like, you know, they got the hand of their face, or their arms are crossed. They're, they're kind of making themselves stable for the picture. And so his way he worked was very intentional. And also, he literally would walk into every situation not knowing the picture he was going to make, right? He would walk in and like his radar would be going immediately. And as a process, I think I've internalized some of it. Like in a sense, if you think of, he wouldn't like chase somebody around with a camera. And again, there's a million good ways to make pictures. I'm not saying his is the best way. It's, it's a, I think it's a very interesting way, right? Mm -hmm. So like if I were going to make your picture Arnold style, I'd come into your studio or home or office, whatever it is. And the first thing I would be looking for, it wouldn't be the light. It wouldn't be anything like that. I'd be trying to figure out what's the best place. Where's the best spot mm -hmm. to do this picture. Right. And then when I decided on that, I then decide sort of the proscenium, the frame, like where, how do I want to frame this? So with that, I would know like what I'm looking at, where do I want to stand with the camera and what lens will I use to get that view that I want, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That would be step one. Step two would be, I would put the person in and figure out how, where they're going to be. Like within my frame, if I want them close up, they'd come closer to the camera. If I want them farther away, they would back up. The picture would be the same. Mm -hmm. It's not like I would zoom into 105 millimeters to get the portrait and then zoom out to 24 to get the room. If I thought I needed to see the room with a 24, but I wanted the person closer, they would just come closer. Mm -hmm. Like people don't really work that way. So that was fascinating to me. And then once I had that figured out, it would be like, okay, now how do we want to light this, right? And the light is a very, it's like um, a language that people don't even think about. It's not just doing beautiful light or good light or flattering light. It's really evocative light. Like, what do you want to say, mm -hmm. right? I mean, you can do sad light and happy light and formal light and what looks like natural light, even if it's not, that kind of thing. So 
all those decisions are being made. And then sort of once all of that's out of the way, then I would feel free to interact with the person, just have some spontaneity, do that. But I'm no longer worrying about all those concerns, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. The downside to that is it's a very intentional, deliberative process, right? The cool thing about it in certain ways is that it's a little bit subject proof. Like if the person and they come in grumpy or hungover or uncooperative, if I have two frames, I know I'll have a photograph that's going to be interesting to look at and will say something about them. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's I do, not yeah. relying on their good mood or relying on me charming them, although hopefully they're in a good mood and hopefully I do charm them. But mm-hmm. that it's really was really fascinating. So that would be a big piece of it. And mm-hmm. also a really cool thing I think is interesting. So nowadays, a really important thing is the uh, sort of metadata, like so you can get hold of your pictures again, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, and naming, file naming is a big deal. And people have a million strategies for that, right? Um, it was in his studio, I couldn't figure it out because his images were filed th- three ways. One way you, you cross-indexed. One was the person's name. The second was the client's name, like Time Magazine or something. And the third thing was just, was a number, right? And I could not figure out the numbers at all. Mm-hmm. Like it was 1975 and the number was like 9473 or something. And you're like, what is 9473, you know? And I'm taking the date and I'm inverting the date. <laughs> and then I'm thinking like, he was Jewish. Is it, is it like the Hebrew calendar? I really, I was trying to figure out everything. And I actually went back in his files and the very first thing that was there was 100, like a checkbook or something. And he literally was now on his 9,473rd picture. Yeah. And the next was 9,474. Like, mm. that's so genius. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> wow, that's like Stone Age metadata. Like it should be chiseled <laughs> into a stone tablet or something. Mm. But it's so interesting because even then, everything was really perfectly organized. And you could find a picture in a second. Mm-hmm. with it which is kind of cool I, I would say not a lot of people i work with really did that mm-hmm. you know so there were so many things to learn okay let me go on to ask you about your own creative process then because you know you went through arnold's process there which was very very deliberate but i thought it was quite interesting that he you said he came in and he, he wouldn't he would just start looking for where he's going to do the picture i feel like for you and your work, from what I've seen, I don't think you're showing up in the White House going, so what are we going to do, guys? I think you're more front-end creative in terms of planning out your pictures. Would that be right? Can you talk a bit about that process? You'd be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> now, honestly, it's like, before I started really centering on portraiture, focusing on portraiture, for about 15 years, I, would, I photographed anything. Like, I was just so happy to be taking pictures. Mm-hmm. And I worked a lot for like Life Magazine. And what was great is they would not uh, pigeonhole you. They, they, if anything, the opposite. They would hire a fashion photographer to photograph in a coal mine mm-hmm. or photograph an industrial photographer to shoot landscapes or something. And what they wanted to see was not if you had a gimmick or what people think of as a style. They would ju- just say, you know, plug your eyes into this and let's see what you can do, which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. so and for those things there's rarely ever any uh, preparation that you could do you know really ahead of time couldn't scout locations or anything like that 
you really have to go in and just make of it what you could, right? Mm -hmm. So that was really good training for me, it was. And so I would say the pictures in the book are 50-50, like the ones that are feeling a little bit more like sort of studio pictures, I might've prepared for it ahead of time. I had a studio for decades, I was an idiot. I just thought, oh, I'm a photographer, I should have a studio. It didn't occur to me that I would actually never use it. Mm -hmm. I like most of my pictures were done. Even the pictures that look like studio pictures, 99% of them were done on location by setting up a studio in the boardroom or in a locker room at a basketball game or in the White House or whatever. Mm -hmm. So what I would use the studio for was like a little laboratory to sort of test out lighting, test out ideas. And I might know that I was doing a certain picture of a certain person and I would set the entire thing up in the studio till I got it just the way I wanted it. And then we would literally take a measure, tape measure and actually measure everything out, figure out where it was. So when we got to the location, we could recreate it perfectly with light readings and distances and everything. We wouldn't have to be sort of scratching our heads and hoping for the best. And so I would do a lot of that at the same time. I would say pretty much every picture in the book that is at a location was just showing up and doing it. Mm -hmm. There was for advertising work, you'd scout locations ahead of time often, but for uh, editorial magazine pictures, I would say almost never, like you just show up and do it. And that's kind of unbelievably stressful, but unbelievably fun. Really? Mm -hmm. You know, it's like you, it's like a little game or something where you have to really figure it out, you know? And, and what's cool is that, you're, you have to be open to surprise. Like some photographers, and again, I think this is all good. None of this is judgmental in any way. Some photographers are happiest in the studio where they can control everything, mm -hmm. right? And they don't have to travel around and deal with all that stuff. And I think that's great. And there are other photographers who photograph like National Geographic or something, and they travel all the time. And they're all about finding the world as it is. You know, a friend of mine is this amazing photographer, Jay Maisel. He would be an interesting person to have on. Mm -hmm. Who's sort of like one of the fathers of color photography, really. Mm -hmm. And he, we're really good friends. And he has this wonderful kind of a, a mantra in a way where he says, hey, man, you know, I like to go out empty and let the world fill me up. Mm -hmm. Like, that's beautiful. You can't argue with that, right? Mm -hmm. I can't do that. I would go crazy. Because I'm like an ADD photographer, like, oh, a bird, a truck, the pond, the lake, close up, clouds, you know, I would just be everywhere. Mm -hmm. And I find that for me, having an intention makes me see better. It's like if I know I'm looking at red cars, all of a sudden I just start seeing all the red cars and I notice who's driving them and what kinds they are. And like, I just see them more because I'm kind of thinking about them. So uh, for me, that that kind of is more of a, of a way to see it. And by when I would photograph on location or photograph, you know, portraits for a magazine, it was never like me doing my cool groovy thing. And I'm never at the, the kind of the focus, the forefront of it. It's like, you get me for free anyway. I shot the damn thing. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I don't have to be pointing at myself. Like I'm, I can't not be part of the picture. So I'm assuming that that's what it's going to be. And really my focus is in, how can I best tell a story about this person very quickly? Because the magazines that I would work for, they're really going to publish one photograph, maybe two, mm -hmm. you know, or three if it's the cover. 
it's not going to be an essay. It's not going to be a 20 page story in National Geographic, probably one picture or two. So whatever that picture is, it kind of has to say everything. If it requires five photographs to say it, but they only publish two and they don't pick the ones that I would have picked, that's, that's tough. So I felt like I had to be really good at like sort of a portrait haiku or something where you could do it really like go in and really quickly figure out what it is. And there's a bunch of considerations. It's like, who's the person? Who's the photograph for? Like if I'm taking a picture of Bruce Springsteen for Fortune or Financial Magazine because of all his money, that might be one kind of portrait. If I'm photographing him for Rolling Stone because of a concert tour he's about to do, probably look different mm-hmm. but if i was photographing for time magazine because of his philanthropy well that might be another kind of picture right mm-hmm. so they're all bruce springsteen but they really wouldn't be the same like just because i'm taking pictures that are blue lately they wouldn't all be blue i, mm-hmm. I don't think that's, for me i'm not criticizing film. it just wouldn't be cool i would be so bored with that i wouldn't like it and similarly if i'm photographing bruce springsteen for time magazine or yasser arafat for time magazine those wouldn't really look the same, mm-hmm. right? They're different people. So I, my thing is like, who's the person? Who's it for? Who, who are the readers who are going to really see this thing? And what's the reason to do this right now? Like, what's the story about? What's the peg? What's the story about at this moment? That might be different a year from now, mm-hmm. right? So to me, all those things come into play. And the other thing that's really important is the editorial world is run by word people. They're the editors, the managing editors, right? That they are, it's just what it is. But the fact of the matter is for everybody who reads a story, say in Time Magazine, like 10,000 people look at the pictures. Mm-hmm. And for everybody who looks at the pictures, 10,000 more look at the cover and never open the magazine. Mm-hmm. So whatever we want to say about this person, I feel like it's my responsibility to say it. Mm-hmm. I don't take it lightly at all. I, I feel like it's my responsibility to really telegraph a message very quickly. And also photography transcends, you know, we're seeing it now, obviously with the internet and everything, but it really transcends all borders. It doesn't have to be translated. It's not perceived like it, everybody gets it right away. Mm-hmm. So for all of those reasons and more, I think the pictures are seriously really, really, really important. Like we are living in a world where visual where images are the primary mode of communication it's no longer words for sure yeah for sure so So it's really it's a cool time to be working you know Mm -hmm. so if you're going on an assignment for the magazine it's you have to get all those it's for this magazine it's the subject and this is the angle or the story so you have to get that info from the the editor the art director somebody like that and you have to bend what you're how you're shooting towards the story am I right to yeah does I don't have to tell the story I might complement the story it might be a counterpoint to the story like honestly in my entire career nobody from a magazine has said we need this picture to look like this right no one would ever come with it's really me going there and doing it it's like we need you to shoot Bruce Springsteen for the cover see you next week yeah but honestly it's not it's it's really that or we need Rudolph, Rudy Giuliani when he was mayor before he went crazy. Like we need a photograph it was after 9-11. The picture has to somehow say Rudy Giuliani and 9-11. That's it. So, but interestingly, I believe I've only done one assignment for Rolling Stone and they never hired me again. 
Mm-hmm. And of course, it wasn't to photograph Mick Jagger. It was to photograph this guy who's a doctor, who is the head of uh, at a university at the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health. And he's his name was Dr. Henderson. He's almost singly, single-handedly responsible for eradicating smallpox on the planet. He's a pretty important guy, right? Mm. So I went up to Rolling Stone. I mean, this is like 35 years ago. And I was so excited. You can't imagine. And... Um, I asked if there was a story or something to read, you know, about him just for, you know, kind of food for thought. And the woman who's the picture editor, who's a fantastic picture editor, she said, what do you care? And I said, why? You know, I kind of want to know about it. She said, just take a cool picture, mm-hmm. which for anybody else would probably be like, wow, this is an awesome assignment. And I just said to her, well, I, I could take a lot of cool pictures. I sort of want to take the right one. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I can make all kinds of cool pictures of him, which is great but I kind of want to be the right one. And she literally left it as, don't worry about it, just take cool pictures. Mm-hmm. And I thought I took a cool picture, but they didn't hire me again, so maybe I didn't. But that's, it's a funny thing that, you know, it's like, I don't know that, um, not that the picture has to be only existing on the merits of its content in a way, so it serves the story. It's just, that is its reason for existence. So to me, that's kind of the underpinning of the picture. It doesn't have to be obvious. It might just influence how I've used the light. Okay, I wanted to ask you then, when you're standing there now, you're set up, the president walks in, Springsteen walks in. How were you feeling in that moment? Then the shoot really begins. You still have, this is what I think is so fun and frightening about portrait photography. It's not a done deal. It's not like buying a loaf of bread where it's a thing and you know what it's gonna be. It's, it's risky. It's like, I get super nervous. All the, I mean, I get nervous all the time anyway, but especially just on that moment before the shoot. Um, so how are you feeling at that time? And, and where do you go for a starter point with the subject once they kind of walk in for their, I'm just assuming a lot of the time you're shooting guys for five minutes and that kind of thing. Yeah, on a good day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, basically, I'm I'm a really friendly person, so I'm friendly. And I you don't have to make the person feel comfortable. I do, I do. For me it's part of my thing. But I like I know a great portrait photographer, who I won't name, who's done tons of pictures like the Time magazine. It's really really good. And he literally said to me one time, I never say a word to them. He said it's their job to fill the space, not mine. Mm-hmm. which is like, you go, dude, man. I Like, I can't even imagine that. Yeah. Like, it's so weird. But, but I think, like, yeah, he makes good pictures. But his pictures, as great as they are, they don't have a lot of heart. They're very well executed. Like, technically, they are immaculate. But they don't have, really have a lot of heart. I wouldn't say that he engages the subjects much. So I tend to be like a funny, nice person. But I do that to kind of get the person kind of relaxed and so they trust me. I'm not looking for them to smile or laugh at jokes or anything, but right up front, I tend to tell them kind of how long it's gonna take and what it's gonna be and what I need from them, Mm -hmm. right? And there are like, it's sort of like four words that always work, even if the person's like irritable or impatient, I just will start out saying, I really need your help. I need your help to make this work. So they realize like, it's not me doing something to them, Mm -hmm. like 
they just stand there like a lump of coal. They're like, oh, it's actually both of us. I really need your help to make this work, right? And I'll be quick. You know, this is, you'll be, and if somebody says, oh, I only have 10 minutes. I say, you'll be out of here in five, mm-hmm. but I really need your help. Yeah. So as soon as they know that, they know it's not going to take forever. They're pretty cool. And I'm very specific about what we're going to do because it, it makes them feel comfortable. It's all the unknowns that don't make them feel comfortable. It's sort of like if you went to see the doctor and the doctor's sort of very tentative with you. Well, I don't know. And yeah, just uh, sit there. I'm, I'm not sure. Like you would feel terrible, right? And women oftentimes remark on they'll see a doctor particularly male doctor it's like really uncomfortable this doesn't feel right so i feel like this is like that like if if you went to see a doctor honestly even if they didn't know for sure and they said graham i've seen this a hundred times before this is what we're doing blah blah you think ah i'm in good hands this is great Mm -hmm. and i think for photographers it's sort of the same people want to feel like they're in good hands like even the president of the united states in those five minutes he's totally vulnerable. He's yours. Mm-hmm. So you actually literally, in a sense, if you're thinking of it this way, hold the power for those moments. Mm-hmm. And actually Michael Bloomberg, and he wrote the forward to my book. What he actually talks about is trust that that's the single most important thing. Mm-hmm. And I think in our profession, it's trust. Like the subject, the person in the picture trusts me that I'll take good care of them. Again, not necessarily make them look handsome or anything like that, but that they're in good hands. And the people who are hiring me trust me that I'll bring back a a photograph that's going to work for them. And also what photographers don't think of much, I think, like we're all assholes basically. And what we think of is like, how many photographers does it take to screw in the light bulb? It takes 500. It takes one to screw in the light bulb and 499 to say they could have done it better. It's like, that's always the way (laughs) we are, right? Except that if somebody's hiring a photographer and let's say they look at your portfolio and it's so unbelievable that they'll never see photography the same way again. In fact, they'll never see life the same way again. It like rocks their world and they can't believe what they've just seen. Let's say that happens, which doesn't probably happen a lot, but let's say it does. You could be an asshole. You could not show up on time. You could offend the person you're photographing. You could do a picture that has nothing to do with what they asked you for. You could do that. You could actually go way over budget. You could turn in the pictures not on time. Like there's a thousand things that could go wrong, even if your pictures are like the most amazing pictures they've ever seen, right? And everybody who's hiring you, it's not you or nobody. They already work with people they like. Probably the reason they're hiring you is it could be because somebody wasn't available. Mm-hmm. The people they work with, they know bring back their pictures. Maybe they're friends. Maybe they're drinking with them. Maybe they're sleeping with them. Like you don't, you don't actually know. So I feel like it's a big um, leap of faith for someone to even hire a new photographer. I really do. So I appreciate their position. I do. So that doesn't make me intimidated or anything. It makes me feel like it's my job to actually do the best thing I can. It really is a thing for me. It is. But I think at that moment that I'm photographing somebody, I really sort of take a deep breath and have and remember that I'm actually in control of this mm-hmm. and that they are looking for me to be in control of it. They really are. Yeah. And as soon as you establish that at the outset, it works like I, I actually was um, photographing. I can't remember who it was. I think it was Jesse Jackson, maybe a civil rights activist. Uh, this is a very long time ago. And many of these people, they'll be photograph. You'll be photographing on the same day as someone else, like Howard Schatz is in the next room, or Albert Watson, and you're in this room because yeah. that's like photo day for somebody, or they're at an event or something. You know, 
Seb was like that. He was giving a speech somewhere and it was at a hotel. And I was in one room and the adjacent room, Annie Leibowitz was there and she was taking a picture of him, right? And so I was talking to her a little bit and she was friendly, it was fine. But what's cool about her, she has a big personality, right? She's like a big person. She's like six feet tall, she's a big, big person. And she doesn't, she's not alternative. She watches, all right, we're gonna burn this place down. You know, and she's like, really, everybody wants to jump on her train. Mm-hmm. You know, she's really pulls people in and gets them excited about it and gets them going, you know, so that they feel like, you know, wow, this, this is gonna be cool. This is interesting, this is fun. And I think, and again, not every photographer does that. And the fact is, there's the saying, every portrait's a self-portrait, which to some extent is true. If you're a quiet mm-hmm. person by nature, you're not going to be Annie Leibovitz. It won't be authentic. And you'll mm-hmm. be freaked out every single time because you're trying to be somebody you're not. Mm-hmm. Like, I know a photographer is a really great guy. He's very quiet. He's an English guy. He's very quiet. And his photographs look like that. His photographs look like him. You know, and I think that's, he's not trying to take someone else's pictures. Mm-hmm. He's doing his pictures, you know, and I, I think that's cool. It's it's so easy to second guess ourselves out of our own way though isn't it i mean and that way did you ever have an issue with that or were we always comfortable that no this is the way i want to do no constantly <laughs> yeah i'm always second guessing myself mm-hmm. and honestly if i'm going to be really honest i think every picture in my book is a failure i do like any photographer being with any grain of honesty they don't think about how awesome they are they're thinking about the pictures they missed and what mm-hmm. went wrong like everybody remembers most clearly the pictures they missed mm-hmm. for sure. I mean, I have, everybody does. So I, that's another reason I don't have my photographs up on the wall is I would get depressed and just be crying all the time. <laughs> Cause I would look at them and think I should have done this. I should have done that. Ugh, why didn't I think of this? All that kind of stuff all the time, you know? So in a way, I think that's good because it keeps you working. It keeps you hungry. It keeps you searching for the picture. Right. I mean, Hopefully next time, hopefully next time, hopefully next time you'll get it. And the only way to actually deal with that and not be sad all the time and depressed is to think of every picture you've done. It's like a visit to the doctor for a checkup. It's like, oh, here's how I was on that day. It's like a record of how I was on that day. Mm-hmm. It's a record of how nervous I was or how excited I was or how technically inept I was or how forgetful I I literally on uh Monday night this week, I was in Chicago for a family. My brother had his 50th wedding anniversary. So I was there for that. His daughter, my niece got married last year and I wanted for their wedding picture to do a portrait of her and her husband in a new little house they bought. So it's a little old cute house in the city of Chicago. I thought that'd be cool, right? But the year went by and there was no way to go because of COVID, right? I couldn't do it because of the pandemic. So I thought, okay, I'll do that. And while I'm there, I'll take the picture. Right. So I haven't been shooting constantly because I'm teaching. Mm -hmm. I was up all night, straight through the night before I got on the plane, Mm -hmm. like packing and repacking and packing and repacking. And I'm used to traveling with assistants and the whole deal. And it was just going to be me. And it occurred to me, like I had five bags packed. Even if I, the airline would accept them, I couldn't get them from the airport, from the terminal to the car, you know, like there'd be no (laughs) way to do it. Right. So I spent two more hours repacking and getting it down to like one case, uh, two, one I would carry on with cameras, but then one on the ship. I got that all done and the case weighed 80 pounds and the airline's maximum is 50. 
Mm-hmm. So I had to take out almost half of what was there. Mm-hmm. So I pared it way down. That was hours more that I hadn't planned on. And while I'm doing that, I'm trying to imagine what the picture might be, right? And it's going to be simple. It's nothing crazy. I'm bringing different things more so I'll have my options open a little bit, mm-hmm. really. So I, um, what I ended up with was some continuous lights in there and a couple of little, like little pro photo flat. They make these B10s that are actually really cool. Yeah. Those, they're great. So I had a couple of those in there and a couple of light stands and stuff like that. That was great. So I get to their house Monday night and it's this cute little house for sure. And I decided what I'm going to do in a sense, it's sort of like an Arnold Newman portrait. It's them in the context of their lounge room, living room, whatever you'd call it. Cause it's, they're both artists and it's very idiosyncratic. It really is like a portrait of them if they weren't even in the picture. Mm-hmm. It's a cool room, you know, it really is cool. And it was made for a picture, it's great. And I did it just the way I said, like I backed up, I framed the picture just right. Then I had them turn off and on lights so it looked okay. And then I figured out where they were gonna be. And then I was gonna set up the light and I'm looking through my little bag because I was gonna use the pro photos. The idea being I can, get an f-stop that i want from the flash mm-hmm. and then the shutter speed can be whatever it needs to be for the ambient light right that's cool i'm good with that mm-hmm. i'm all set everything's great and i'm rummaging through all the bags and what i don't have in there is the remote that's going to fire the flash mm-hmm. don't have that i still haven't found it i've been tearing apart my house <laughs> and i literally spent 20 minutes in a sweat like god how did i forget this thing like i remember putting it in and I literally emptied everything out on the floor and it wasn't there. So I ended up having to take the picture with a quartz light that was too bright that I had to figure out ways to make it darker. Literally, it was crazy. Yeah. And I ended up doing the picture and in a way it led me to a solution that I wouldn't have gotten to otherwise. So mm-hmm. that's kind of cool, but it was a one second exposure and I don't know if they held still. And just to cover myself, I did a second setup with them, they have all those little fan windows in, the, in their front door. It looks like a little fan. Mm-hmm. And through that, you can actually see the downtown skyline of Chicago, small, but it's there. It's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. So I thought, oh, I'll shoot their picture and have that be part of the picture at dusk. So the lights come on in the city. I'm like, oh, that'll be cool. But that would have been great with a flash because mm-hmm. I could light them and then do five second exposure for the background or shoot a separate plate or something, right? Yeah. But at that point, it's dark. It's getting a little late. Everybody's getting a little tired, mm-hmm. right? And it's the kind of thing you can lose your subject where like the operations is assessed, but the patient died. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it's a perfectly yeah. executed, stiff, boring as shit picture. Mm-hmm. I've shot more of those than I could even you know, talk about. But I did it. I got them. So it was cool. It worked out nice. They're like doing a nice little warm thing is cool. And I get back home and I put it on the computer and they're all a little out of focus. They're all soft. So basically, I screwed up the shoot. The good news is the first picture that I took, even though it was stressful, it actually looks great. But that's photography for me. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm not high-fiving myself all over the studio and dancing around. Like, every single thing, I think of other stuff. And that's what I'm saying. It's like a snapshot. It's like, that's how I was on june 27th or whatever it was of Mm -hmm. 2021 like i was up all night i haven't done that in a while i forgot the thing it's like oh that's how i was on that day Mm -hmm. you know and it's unfortunately it's etched in stone forever but in that picture 
Yeah. My insecurity, my nervousness, it's all there. And there are other pictures that are work out great. And there are other pictures where the picture's great, but I was still really upset. And the other thing is, I know I'm talking about this, it's really important though. I think you have to be a really great editor of your own work. Mm-hmm. A lot of photographers hand it over to someone else. Like, I don't know, I shoot him. I come, well, I don't even know the good one. Like you have to know the good one. Mm-hmm. Like you might spend a 60th of a second taking the picture. If you spend hours looking at it on the computer, you learn a lot about your pictures for mm-hmm. sure. And you have to decide w- which ones are the ones. And the truth is, I could pick one image as the picture, best picture now. And five years from now, I'd look at it again and pick a different one. Mm-hmm. I was actually making prints for Arnold when I worked for him. He did a famous portrait of this artist, Mondrian. And I was pulling the negative to print it. And I actually was looking through the contact sheets. And I saw another picture that in my 21-year-old state, I thought was a better picture. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I literally had the guts to go up to him. And I said, Mr. Newman, if you don't mind my saying so, could we make a time? I think this one's really the one. And he actually looked at me like, I can't believe you've been saying this, but he said, well, if you want to make a print and we'll see, you know, we'll see. And I ended up printing it. And in this book of a hundred pictures of his, that's the version they used. Mm-hmm. Right. So he would have picked it that day. He wouldn't have picked it 40 years earlier, 30 years earlier, he picked it that day. So I think it's important because you're the author of your work all the way through. And the fact is, I could bring my pictures to a magazine that I think are the best pictures I've ever shot. And that has happened. And they look at it and they go, well, Greg, you know, this isn't really what we had in mind. There's nothing I can say to that. Like I'm not a mind reader, Mm -hmm. but, but I know it was a really good picture for sure. And it was the right thing, but it wasn't what they were thinking. And that happens a lot when the picture editor is, or was a photographer because they think about how they would have shot it. It happens all the time, but there's other times which like if I had shot this picture of my niece and nephew and it was for a magazine, why bring in the picture? I'm like tentatively like uh, you know, handing it in. And I'm looking at it thinking, gosh, I hope it'll be okay. And what they say is, see, that's why we hire Heisler, a great picture every time. Yeah. You know what I mean? It yeah. doesn't mean that's the good picture. Like I know, I know which ones I think are the good ones and which ones maybe not so much. You have mm-hmm. to know that yourself. You can't hope for the validation to come from somewhere else. I know over the years you've used a lot of different cameras, a lot of different formats. Yeah. Uh, this is maybe a difficult or weird question, but if you could dive into your historical camera bag and pick out one camera and lens combination, what, what would you go for? I mean, it, because the pictures vary so much, the gear has varied a lot. Mm-hmm. Like I have a whole room downstairs in my house that has cameras, that some of which I haven't used in 20 years. I'm not kidding. Mm-hmm. Like one of my favorites, is actually, it's the same, it's funny. It's just because I was looking, it's literally the same camera and the same lens that Richard Avedon used for a lot of his portraits, like his American West pictures. Mm -hmm. It's the same camera lens that like Paolo Reversi uses for a lot of his stuff. And it's a eight by 10, 10 by eight Deerdorf. It's a wooden view camera, Mm -hmm. plate camera. And the lens is a 12 inch, uh, a Dagor is the, is what it's called. And um, it's, it's just a great combination. It's really good. I mean, and they use it too, and it's really great. It's, it's kind of fun to work with. The big cameras make you really slow down, mm-hmm. which is cool. 
And that lens is basically a 50 pretty much, right? So it's not adding or subtracting or doing anything dramatic. It's just, it just is what it is. And for portraits, which is kind of an interesting thing, it puts you at a conversational distance from someone. Like one of the things I noticed is big deal in portraiture is the working distance from the person, right? So if I'm shooting a picture of somebody with a 200, I'm almost gonna have to yell for them to hear me. Yeah. I never have music in the studio for that reason. Like they, they need to hear me. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I shoot their picture with a 24, I'm, I better be in love with them because I'm like right up on them. Mm-hmm. Kind of like 50-ish is like two people sitting across from each other having dinner. Mm-hmm. That, that's pretty cool. And that's like, everybody's comfortable with this. That's like a reason have to be the thing. That would be a combination I like, right? Mm-hmm. For years, I worked with a Mamiya RZ67. That was my workhorse. It wasn't fun to use. It wasn't like, wow, what a beautiful camera. Mm-hmm. It was like just really a workhorse tool that did the job and was great. And for that, the lenses I use most were in a sense, every lens in the range of normal. Like a normal lens for that would be like a 100 or something like that, maybe mm-hmm. or 90. And I literally had like, a 50, a 75, a 90, a 110, a 127, and a 150. Mm-hmm. Just subtle differences, but you see it. You really see it. And now probably what I would use, uh, I've used them for years as Canons, like especially I used them before digital, but not digitally for sure. And if somebody was holding a gun to my head and I was traveling around the world and only had to take one lens, if it had to be like versatile, it'd probably be like a 24 to 105 because you can't do anything. But if I really were just taking one lens for sure, it would be the 24 uh, tilt shift. To me, that's the lens I could do anything with. Like I could do a portrait, I could do an interior, I could do a landscape. It's manual focus, it's all that. But in a sense, it combines aspects of using the view camera, mm-hmm. squished down to Canon 35 millimeter size. Mm-hmm. So that would be the one. And my kit that I would carry now would be two of the Canon cameras, a 24 tilt shift, a 45 tilt shift, a 90 tilt shift. Mm-hmm. Those would be the ones. And if I, I, I have the 17, but it's pretty wide for tilt shift. I mean, it's cool, but it's awfully wide. But like, those would be the three lenses I would use mm-hmm. and 24 to 105, cause you kind of do anything. But there are times in my life, like if I was running around, I'd probably do a 24 to 70 and a 70 to 200. They're both two eight two bodies, you could kind of do anything you want. Mm-hmm. But with zooms, I feel like I'm zooming around with a prime lens, not because it's sharper or better. I'm actually really careful with my distance and I'm not zooming with the lens. I'm like zooming with my feet and moving around more. Mm-hmm. So that's what I would probably do. Mm-hmm. How do you find, so if you were going to shoot with a Canon, a portrait, you would take the 24 tilt shift over the 45 tilt shift. Because I, I know that a lot of your uh, large format camera work, obviously you, you utilize that kind of tilt shift effect. So yeah. you go with the 24 for the wider view, but you still get the fall off in the kind of depth of field with that, with a portrait. Not as much, not as much as you would like, right? Mm-hmm. I like it mm-hmm. once you're, and again, different pictures for different reasons. Like mm-hmm. if what I want is the bokeh thing, I wouldn't be using those lenses, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I actually have, I'm ashamed to say, um, a Zeiss Otis 50, I think it's a 50 and it's 1.4. It's like a $4,000 lens. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing it and thinking, what kind of asshole would spend $4,000 for a 50 <laughs> millimeter lens? And sure enough, I'm that asshole. 
<laughs> and I did it because, frankly, I was just curious. And I tested it out for, for the students. Like, you can buy 50 for like 99 bucks. I literally bought the $99 one, the $279 one, the $450 one, and then the Zeiss, right? The Zeiss is 10 times more than the most expensive, like Canon 50, something like that. Is it worth 10 times more? Probably not. But it actually has the beautiful bokeh. And at the same time, it's just a thing. Zeiss lenses have a certain kind of sharpness that's very beautiful. Mm -hmm. For some reason, it's less technical looking. Maybe I'm just you know, kidding myself. It's pretty cool. But the fact is, all the pictures in the book and all the pictures I've ever taken in my life, none of them were taken with that lens. And it seemed to work out okay. Yeah. <laughs> These photographers are, were like idiots. You know what I mean? Really, mm -hmm. it's just what it is. But I would take the 24 because of how I'm shooting now. Okay. I might not do it some other way. Like in, when I went to shoot them, I had the 24, the 45. And my third lens was actually the, um, it's a, a Zeiss planar. It's a hundred. It's a really nice, that is a very beautiful portrait lens. And I had that just in case I was also going to do like a portraity portrait, like a closer one. It's very pretty. And I brought the 24 to 105 more for sort of location scouting for a quick look around. Mm -hmm. That's what I brought for that. And it all fit in a little camera bag and it was fine. This is a round called double exposure. Okay. And this is where I'm going to ask you about a particular picture that I really like of yours. Then I'll throw it back to you to let me know if there's one standout image moment from your photography journey that really sticks with you. It's always tricky with these to take it one picture from somebody's portfolio with you. I'm, I'm not blowing smoke. It's almost impossible to get one. The ones I've earmarked are, um, Muhammad Ali's trainer. Sorry, I just the name has just escaped me at this moment. Yeah, uh, Luis Surya. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and then there's Tim Burton and Harry Belafonte. I just can't get over this picture, and the Muhammad Ali himself. But oh, I'm I'm torn between Mick Jagger and Tina Turner and Denzel Washington. And there's a reason I wanted to ask you about Denzel Washington. So I'm going to go with that one. Can you tell me about the Denzel Washington picture? So that was a horrible experience. He's a perfectly nice person for sure. It was done for GQ magazine. And the idea was to do a, you know, a cover and <clears throat> an inside picture, but more importantly for this one, I think it was an inside picture. And at that point he wasn't kind of the leading man. He wasn't really starring a lot, but he was in tons of movies as like an amazing character actor. And he had won an Oscar, uh, I can't remember the name of the movie, but it, I think it was called Soldier's Story. But he had all these roles like as Malcolm X and all these different things. Right. So I had this idea that a cool thing to do would be to make like have a uh, wardrobe designer, make him a complete head to toe outfit that incorporated bits of all of the characters he was known for that he had played. Right. Mm -hmm. So it might be Malcolm X's sunglasses and his hat. It might be the soldier's uniform. It could be who knows what. Right. So there was a lot of back and forth with the uh, wardrobe designer. And the magazine spent a bunch of money having this thing made. It was amazing looking. He walked into the studio and looked at it and he says, oh, I'm not wearing that. And I was like, well, Mr. Washington, if you don't mind asking, like, what about it? I said, it's really a lot of thought went into it. He says, I'm sure. He said, I never revisit a role once I'm done. I never watch the movie. I don't ever go there. I'm done with that. Mm -hmm. He said, what's, what, what's your next idea? Mm -hmm. It was like, 
Oh, well, actually, I just have to answer this phone call. <laughs> so yeah, I literally, you know, walked around outside and smoked a cigarette or something. I don't know what I did. I don't smoke now, but I think I was then. And there wasn't really a plan B. Like we've mm. put so much into that. And again, yeah. he's not a terrible person. It's his picture. It's fine. Yeah. Right. But uh, and sometimes it makes me think I wasn't a good enough salesman. I think, well, maybe Annie could have gotten to wear it. Or maybe with Annie, there's 10,000 things that don't work. And you just don't hear about them. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, that's, I'm sure. Yeah. But um, so what I ended up doing was a very nice portrait that was the cover. It's kind of like uh, it's all dark tones, low key on a black background. It's really simple and nice. And the picture that's the cool picture is uh, there was this object that I brought that looked like a um, like a pedestal, like a plinth, right? Mm-hmm. And I wasn't sure what I was going to do with it. I just thought it was cool. And they had, being in GQ, like a thousand outfits for him to wear. So they had this all black suit, like Armani suit that was beautiful. And when he stood on this thing, he literally looked like an Oscar. Mm-hmm. So that ended up being the picture and it worked out fine. But that was like right on the edge of disaster. Like, I cannot have a picture of this guy. I get like, and I have to make him think, I know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And I'm not standing there scratching my head, you know? And, and you have to be okay with it as well. You can't be throwing a fit, you know? That never, I've watched photographers who I won't name do that. It mm-hmm. never works. You can't, no, it you just can't. doesn't. Yeah. It never works. It really, it's so, such a bad form. It just doesn't happen. So yeah, no, I'm always like, oh, well, great. You know, and I try to, honestly, it's like the Zen approach. I try to see each thing as an opportunity. Like, okay, I can't do that. So that's, maybe that's a gift. And what I'm actually, the, the goal is to like find the picture that I would not have otherwise thought of. And in that case, it was. At the moment, it felt like I was going to drown. But, but I try really hard to like, sort of take a deep breath and say, okay, cool. Well, what else are we going to do? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the only way to survive a situation like that. I think not to like ram it down somebody's throat and have a fit and argue. It's just like, hmm, okay, well, maybe this is a cool thing. Yeah. Well, I thought uh, the reason I wanted to ask you about that one is I, I, I could see that obviously that's a difficult situation where it, it's like, no, thank you. And then you have to you know go to something else. Um, yes. The other reason I wanted to ask you was, and, you know, it's a double exposure and um just the amount of that the camera has moved to me I've kicked the tripod so many times and I was just wondering if you if that was an intentional move or if you just kicked the tripod it was intentional but it wasn't but I kicked the tripod how's that (laughs) (laughs) if I hadn't planned on it and what it actually was was I don't know if they still make it but Fuji made a five by four film that was like a Polaroid it was in a little paper envelope right so what I had to do was like pull it up, take the picture, put it down. And I think in the process of doing that, I think actually, I don't think I kicked the tripod, but I think it wasn't in perfect registration sort okay. of. Yeah. I think that's what happened with that, if I remember correctly. Uh, let's say that it was a surprise when I saw the film. Okay. So what you were thinking, oh, oh dear, when you saw that, or how did you receive that? Uh, when I saw it, it looked cool. Because okay. I was intending on a, on a double exposure so we could see through him mm-hmm. like that. That was cool. I was good with that. Mm-hmm. But actually the fact that there was, it was not uh, in perfect alignment kind of gave it like a little twitchy sort of energy that I actually thought I was like, Oh, that's kind of cool. Again, yeah. like a gift in a way. Yeah. It's you know? cool. It is good. It's cool. Um, I was, I'm, I'm so tempted to go back for one more. Uh, can, can I just, can you quickly tell me about the, the bathroom with 
Mick Jagger and Tina Turner because I just it seems like a completely improbable situation that may never happen again. Yeah, I don't think it's gonna happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, again, it's it's kind of getting the gift, right? So that was at the concert Live Aid. It was like 1985 or six or something. It was in yeah. Philadelphia. And we were going there for, um, uh, I, the idea was that we we're going to be doing it for Life Magazine, but they didn't really feel like it was going to be anything because um, Michael Jackson had already done his like, we are the world song. Yeah. So I think they figured like, oh, we've got famine covered. We're okay. That was it. Yeah. <laughs> or something. So, <laughs> so uh, I talked to some folks at Kodak they used to be a company that made film and uh, they were willing to kind of, in a sense, sort of sponsor it that I had this idea for something to do. So I drove down there like without any access at all in a big truck with a ton of gear, with a backdrop, with, with my 10-8 camera, the whole thing. And really just talked my way in. And I think because it was such a big deal, I wasn't just some guy with a camera on his shoulder. I think they thought they looked through their papers like, well, it must be here. You know, it must be okay. Mm-hmm. So we got in and then we got to the actual stadium, the arena, and there was nowhere to set up at all. Right. And so I started walking around. And the truth is, if I were setting up somewhere off to the side or outside, I would never be able to get anybody to be in the picture. Mm-hmm. They would have to almost trip over me to get to the stage. It's not the only way you'd get it. Yeah. So there were three uh, bathrooms right off stage that were there. One was a men's room, one was a ladies room, and one was a room of undetermined, I don't know, gender, right? It wasn't labeled. Mm -hmm. So we went in there and nobody's in there. So that was good. So we just commandeered it. We started moving all our stuff into that room. And it was a bathroom. We kind of started everything set up in the backdrop. It's not an original picture. It's like a a bad Irving Penn wannabe or something, you know, but now it's just like, oh, people use a painted backdrop. Really, you know, but I thought it would be fine. I really did. So I get it set up. Then we pull out the lights and we're looking around and there's actually nowhere to plug in a light. There's no outlets in the wall of course, because it's a bathroom from 1920 and people didn't have blow dryers to dry their hair, mm-hmm. right? Or electric shavers. There's like no anything. There's nothing. And so now I am in a little bit of a panic. I don't have battery powered lights or anything like that. And, and obviously there's 10 million watts and volts and amps of power. We're in the stadium, they're running this huge concert, but none of it was available to me, mm-hmm. right? So I'm in a panic and I look around and there's literally one light bulb hanging from the ceiling that's lighting the room. And I looked at my little case of gear and there's a little adapter that we had that was like a dollar 29 or something. Mm-hmm. And you unscrew a light bulb and then screw this thing in and you can plug into that, right? right? So that's what we did. And the entire shoot was done by plugging the thing into that one thing. Mm -hmm. And we just started getting people in. We stood outside the room and asked if we could take a picture and blah, blah, blah. And once you had a couple of people do it, then everybody was doing it. And my my sort of pitch was I would just shoot one frame, Mm -hmm. which is what I did. It would just take a set, literally one click. And what was cool about that is I'm so used to begging people for more time and they don't like it. Mm-hmm. And for this thing, they were okay to be there. And I was like, no, I'm good. I'm done. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Like it was great to be done first, just like that. Yeah. And the Mick Jagger, Tina Turner one was an exception. We actually taught two frames, both sides of an eight by 10 film holder. 
uh, one was kind of more fun and one was more serious. Mm-hmm. But literally, they were in there for like a minute. No, it was very quick. Mm-hmm. It works out really well. It's just, it's so, I mean, it's sort of the peak of 80s, you know. In mm-hmm. one oh, for sure. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, I could, I really could talk to you forever and ever. I just, I love so many of your pictures. The one other one I had kind of earmarked was George W. Bush, which I just think is such a delicious picture. But um, is there one journey that just super memorable or you're really grateful to have had or just a great picture, anything you could share? I mean, so many. I mean, honestly. There are, so, there are crazy ones and good ones and funny ones. You know, I mean, the Bush thing was certainly interesting. Mm-hmm. For Life magazine, it's not in the book, but we did this, uh, <clears throat> a series of portraits. It was on the occasion of Frank Sinatra's 75th birthday. Mm-hmm. And what the magazine wanted to do was a series of portraits of all of the crooners, all of the singers, his contemporaries in a way, mm-hmm. who sing like the American songbook, really, you know? And they were people, again, people might not know their names, but they were huge people. It'd be people like Rosemary Clooney, who turns out is George Clooney's aunt. Mm-hmm. But it was Rosemary Clooney and uh, Tony Bennett and Mel Torme and um, Carmen McRae. all these, yeah, Ella Fitzgerald, right? Mm-hmm. So I went around and did all their pictures, wherever they were. I did portraits of them, and they were pretty close portraits. And I did these pictures in a way that it almost doesn't matter. I did them so it would look like we were at a venue and they came to your table in between sets and were just talking to you was what it wanted to look like. Mm-hmm. So that was, that's kind of what it was. But unlike most uh, stories that I would do for life or all the others, pretty much, I would never go with a writer or a reporter. Like they would do the thing and then I would usually go later or before, but independently. So I've never had the experience except a million years ago when I was in college. What happens all the time if you work for like a newspaper is the writer or reporter goes and they say, oh, this is Greg. He's my photographer like you're the organ grinder's monkey or something, you know, and it's awful. So I've never had that much. But in this case, he was there. The writer was there and it was cool. And I was able to, while I was setting up, he would do the interviews first. And I was able to hear what they were saying, which was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And all of them were very deferential and complimentary to Frank Sinatra. Oh, a big influence. And there'll never be another one. And blah, 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 blah. And all that kind of stuff. And about each other. And Carmen McRae, she was an amazing, amazing kind of jazz singer, really. Just great. And she comes in and she brought in like a flask of, of whiskey or something. You know what I mean? Like she was ready and she comes in and sits down and she said, there's one thing I hate, it's getting my motherfucking picture took, you know? <laughs> Which like you already know, just from her attitude, it'll probably be fun, right? And so the writer's interviewing her about this one and that one. And she's just being really funny and honest in the way that the others say like Mel Torme oh he sings like a C-A-U-C-A-S-I-A-N and you know what I'm talking about like he sings <laughs> like a Caucasian you know that kind of thing really funny really really funny so we did these pictures of her they were really working out really well she was terrific I just fell in love with her I thought she was great and I'm helping her out to her car with like her gowns and all that stuff and she had a like a station wagon or something and in LA, a lot of people have vanity license plates, like it'll have your name or a thing. And her license plate was uh, KMBA, right, Kimba. And so I had to ask, and I said, Ms. McCray, if you don't mind asking, what's, what's uh, Kimba? And she said, oh, Sugar, you don't know what Kimba is? And I was like, no, ma'am, I, I don't. She said, well, most people I tell them, it's like, you know, an African name like Kimba Kinti or something like that. She said, you really don't know? 
ass. I'm sorry, man, I don't. She said, can be it's kiss my black ass. Drop it on LA with editor license plate. So that's yeah. just some sort of her whole attitude. That's awesome. Yeah, just great, really, right? Cool. If you got two minutes, I've got a quick fire sure. round called Motor Drive. Okay, you ready for it? I'm set. Let's Let me get it. a sip of coffee. Here we go, a sip of coffee. I'm ready. Okay, you've just answered the first question, which was going to be a cup of tea or a cup of coffee. Coffee. Okay. Can I tell you a funny quick story? It's actually really funny. For sure, yeah. One of the first assignments I ever did was taking pictures of like these little industrial things for like film strips. It was training, like a training video, except before video. Mm-hmm. And I would go with a writer. And the writer was this little Englishman, right? And we were in the deep south, like Alabama or someplace, taking pictures for a railroad. And we go to like a diner. It was our first morning together. I never met the guy. And we order our breakfast. And uh, he says, I'd like a tea, please. Hot tea. And she's like, y'all don't want coffee? And she says, no, a hot tea, please. And he says, well, what's the matter? Are you sick? In the States, a lot of people <laughs> drink tea when they're sick. And he says, no, I just like a hot tea. And she's scratching her head, looking around. She said, well, all I got's iced, but I could heat it up for you. <laughs> From a dispenser. Like one of those things. Yeah. Was, anyway, coffee. Sorry. Okay, I got you. Okay, expensive lens cloth or just the corner of your shirt? I corner of the shirt for sure. I'm yeah. surprised because I thought yeah. you're such a craftsman, but anyway. Yeah, I don't spit on it. I, I draw the line at spit, but yes, <laughs> I have used that. Okay, uh, what's the number one best thing to do in Syracuse? Um, actually, it's we laugh about it. When people come, I show them the site. <laughs> like the site's kind of like what it is. Syracuse is actually a really cool place. Um, there's the one of our the best barbecue place in the country. It's called Dinosaur Barbecue. People come from all over for that. That's a big one. And there's beautiful, uh, um, like nature all around. There's like the Adirondack Mountains are near here. It's beautiful. There's like gorges and forests and lakes. It's actually amazing. Very, very beautiful. It's great. It's actually really terrific here. Okay. I actually live on a lake 10 minutes from school so okay, it's like wow. vacation home 24 7 it's really great That's yeah cool. we're very That's fortunate cool. um what was the last great book movie album series you experienced oh my god um actually i have a couple things so i have a book here which i could show you but i'll show you just so you can see it even though they won't see it it's this book called the moon mm-hmm I like, I'm into astronomy and I remember seeing these pictures in this book. I'll just show you one. Can you see that? Yeah. Like amazing, like, it's an amazingly detailed photograph of like craters on the moon, mm-hmm. but this book, yeah, it's a, the moon as a planet, a world and a satellite. It was published in London in 1885. Right. Mm-hmm. You, there was no way to make, a photograph through a telescope in 1885. Mm-hmm. Like, no way. Certainly not anything sharp. There's no way. And I'm looking at this thing. How did they do that, right? So what this guy did, he was an amateur astronomer. He spent ages looking through his telescope and making very detailed drawings. Then he made plaster cast, plaster models of what he, from his drawings. Mm-hmm. And then he took them outside in the sunlight and photograph those, and that's okay. what these are. Like somebody who's, like you think of yourself as obsessed as a photographer, mm-hmm. this dude's obsessed, right? <laughs> so that was pretty cool. That's like an amazing thing I just saw. Uh, so many good movies. I mean, um, 
visually, I loved the shape of water, which is so great to look at. Mm-hmm. It was an amazing, beautiful thing. And actually the crown was, has been very well, beautifully photographed for sure. And I look to cinematographers a lot. I mean, and so interesting, mostly. I think that how I approach my photography is to a great extent how how really great cinematographers approach their work, which is like they are trying to, all of their technical knowledge is in the service of the story through the vision of the director in a way. And their thing is to have that happen better than anyone could ask for it because they understand it so well, right? So someone like, uh, what's his name, Chibo Emanuel Lubezki, he won f- three Oscars in a row. One was for um, Gravity. That was that Sandra Bullock sort of space movie. Mm-hmm. Another one was for Birdman, which is a freaky, weird movie with Michael Keaton. Mm-hmm. And the third one was for, um, oh, what town's it called? The Revenant with Leo DiCaprio. Like the three movies could not be more different. Mm-hmm. And he won three Oscars in a row. No one had ever done that. So it's not like you say, oh, that's his style, mm-hmm. or, or he always shoots this way, you know, desaturate color, blah, blah, blah. No, he's just telling the story. Mm-hmm. So I study the work of cinematographers a lot because I think there's so much to be learned. And a lot of that is working its way digitally into still photography. Now, now still photographers talk about color grading. Mm-hmm. Like nobody, nobody ever did that before, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and I think it's really cool. It's getting more and more sophisticated. And one of the things that's cool is as a still photographer now, because of digital, I could literally have on my desk, like a Mac and my camera and a little printer. And I could have like a gallery show and a website and everything, do all my work with mm-hmm. stuff that fits on my desk. Like mm-hmm. that's a miracle, you know, to be able to do this. So it's a really cool time. How do you find uh, working with uh, young people today? I mean, you, you find them inspiring? Like, do you feel like we're in good hands? Yeah, I think people will always surprise you in a good way. I'm like, that's kind of like my motto at school is you never know what somebody's next picture is going to be. Mm-hmm. You just don't know. People will surprise you. So that's really cool. I feel like my job is to get them excited. About I really I think it's awesome. I think we're like as photographers, our worst day, honestly, is better than most people's best day. Yeah, it really is. Like what we can say, like oh my god, that was a nightmare. For most people, would be like an amazing experience. Yeah, that's that's I so we're really, true. I think we're really lucky, and I feel like the difference. If I were to generalize, which is a horrible thing to do, but if there's a trait that seems lacking or less present in a way which you cannot teach is curiosity. You can't make someone be curious about something, mm-hmm. right? And, and a little bit of laziness. It's sort of like there's a $100 bill on the ground. It's like, oh my God, you mean I have to bend and pick it up? You know, it's like, <laughs> and it's that. Like, and again, as still photographers who were working with film, like I feel really fortunate to have one foot in each world in a way. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, this will never happen again. That's a pretty cool time. Mm-hmm. but still photographers work with film when digital came along it's like oh my god i can choose as much as i want it's free this is great mm-hmm. right and they did and do for students two things happen one of which is they they actually are done like they get the picture and they're done it's not like they see it and they say okay i have this now what else can i do it's like they see it and it's like okay time for beer they're just not they don't push it. And students will do an assignment and have shot literally six frames. 
flip on things. And I said, I mean, it'll, it'll take longer to talk about it, but it's you to shoot it. Like, no way. Mm -hmm. But the other thing, I think this is huge. My little epiphany is huge. Two epiphanies. Can I give you my two epiphanies? They just for sure. Them. So for students, a big thing like grad students I teach, I'm teaching a, a class in two weeks for grad students who are starting their journey, right? Graduate students meant mm -hmm. for a master's degree. Mm -hmm. If you're going for a master's degree in engineering, you probably had some engineering in your undergraduate stuff. As a photographer, this is not necessarily the case. Mm -hmm. Like we end up with grad students who like taking pictures on their phone, who used to be, they were English majors and they worked, had a corporate job and they decided they want to change. So they're starting from zero in a way. But the interesting thing is, I have them think about this on the first day. It's like, you need to figure out if you're in love with the idea of being a photographer or if you're in love with photographing. And I think a lot of people are in love with the idea of being a photographer. It's like people go to a concert, a rock concert or something, or a football game. That's not the only time those people play their instruments. It's not the mm -hmm. only time they're on the football field. Like they work their asses off all week practicing, rehearsing and running drills, all kinds of stuff for you to see what you see, right? And really great photographers, are doing that all the time. Mm -hmm. Like pictures that you see are, that are their pictures, they're working, they're doing other stuff all the time, right? Mm -hmm. That's one thing. The other thing, and this is actually, to me, the biggest influence of digital, I think, is with film photography, because you couldn't see it, right? Photographers were always looking for their next picture. And you see it, like when you see videos, they're shooting and then they're actually kind of looking around. Mm -hmm. With digital, photographers are always looking at their last picture. Yeah. They take a picture and they look at the camera. So, and because they don't have that experience in film, it's not like they say, oh, this is good. I have this. Now what else can I do? they like, I've got it. And they're sort of done. Yeah. But my thought that digital has actually encouraged people to be backward looking instead of forward looking. And I think that that combined with like the curiosity thing is tough. So I feel like as a teacher, I have to really, really get people excited about it and see what I see, not mm -hmm. to take pictures like I take pictures, but to see how amazing it is to do. I was just going to say one other thing, because some people talk about a lot. So obviously, everybody's a photographer now. Like, that's not even a question. Mm -hmm. And and the fact is, even with phones, like, you can take pretty good pictures. I mean, you can. You don't have to learn all this stuff. You don't. Right. You can take pretty good pictures. So. Mm -hmm. That's sort of great. The tough part is everybody's taking pictures. So if you're a photographer, it can be kind of tricky. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's all the reason you have to bring more to the game. Like you really need to be able to do things other people can't do. Mm -hmm. And that, that can mean technically, it could also mean creatively or both, right? But I went to photo school for a year, way back. I never graduated college. I had like three freshman years in a row. I never sort of at different places. Mm -hmm. but at the end of my year at a photo school was actually not far from here in Rochester. They had a guy come to give a lecture who was, he was the shit. He was like, he wasn't a name anybody would know. He was an advertising photographer and advertising photographers generally don't get credits. Like you wouldn't even know who they are. Like who does all the TV commercials? You wouldn't know. Right? Mm -hmm. This guy, all the money at that time in advertising and photography was like booze, cars, and cigarettes mm -hmm. for sure. And he did all of them. And he did literally all the billboards you would see, all the magazine ads. He did all that stuff, really. And he came to give a talk. And for us, it was like, wow, this guy's like the guy, you know? 
So he saw his stuff and he was really good. And at the end, I asked the stupid question that everybody would ask, which is, what advice would you give to a photographer starting out today? Right. And he was quiet for a minute. And he said, kid, I hate to tell you this. I'd be a set builder or makeup artist. He said, the photography business, it's dead. It's over. Yeah. And she said that. And everybody was like shaking their head. They couldn't believe he said that, right? And, but the fact is, for him, it was over. Like the business was changing and the business as he knew it was ceasing to exist. For me, it wasn't over. Like there are photographers who shot for Life magazine where they get six months in Africa to shoot leopards. Like for me, a day at John Travolta's house was like all my Christmases came at once. Like mm -hmm. I thought it was great. So I never lamented a career I never could have had. I never yeah. thought about it, right? So people who are there now, they're not going to have my career. Mm -hmm. It would be ridiculous for me to teach them how to have a career 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. But like, there's this crazy thing called the internet. It's free. Like, you don't have to pay to promote yourself. You have to be smart, mm -hmm. right? Like, you have access to the whole universe. You don't have, you can live anywhere. You don't have to live near a lab or something or where the magazines are. Like, anyway, so people just have to think of it differently and find the opportunities where they are. You know, and you have to be certainly more of an entrepreneur and certainly more sort of inventive. But God, it's, it's, it's like, it's kind of amazing. Mm -hmm. So it's really important for photographers. Like I think when old photographers teach, they can tend to communicate a negative vibe because from where they're sitting, it's over. Yeah. And it's not over. Like the world is more image oriented than ever. And there's more of a hunger for images, right? I mean, for sure. So. I don't know. I just I put it in because it's important. It really yeah, important. that's great. Okay, one last question. When do you feel at peace with the universe? Uh, honestly, there are two, two times. <laughs> I'm not a meditator, but my wife suggested I do a meditation thing. So I did. And the first time, and I'm, I still don't meditate, but I'll try. But the first time we did it, I did it. The guy who was leading us, okay, it's sort of like close your eyes find your happy place like it could be a beach just envision what that is right and completely unexpected unbidden the image that popped in my head was i was under the dark cloth of that deardorff camera and i was holding the little brass knobs to focus mm -hmm. like why would that pop up that was actually <laughs> it so that was kind of amazing and the other time i'm actually at peace is playing music like i just during covid started playing the electric bass, which I have on there. Yes, yeah. I've never done anything like that. I love Motown stuff. And I was listening to some and I just thought, it occurred to me that what I was listening to is the bass. That yes. was the thing that me kind of, you know, boogie. So I just thought I'll try, like I have all this time, I'm home. And online there's like a thousand million tutorials. And there are people who are performing artists who weren't performing because they couldn't tour and they were giving lessons. Mm -hmm. So. To me, that's so much fun. Like listening to music is one thing, but the pleasure of even stringing a few notes together is unbelievable. And I'm so bad at it that like it requires all my synapses, all my little brain cells. So I can't be worried about anything else when I'm doing it. I'm just totally doing it, you know? And it's to me, that's been super fun. And again, yeah. not because I'm going to be great at it or earn a living at it. It's just really fun. Um, so I want to thank you so much for your generosity. And no, it's uh, a pleasure. I could listen to you all day long. It's so, so much fun for me. I've really, really enjoyed this. Thank you. Tell my wife she's sick of it, so. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> well, <laughs> thanks a lot, Greg. All right, take good care, Graham. Yeah, take care. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. Go to gregoryheisler.com to see Greg's amazing work and I highly recommend his book, 50 Portraits, which is available in the usual places. If you enjoy this episode, then check out my conversations with Howard Schatz and come back next episode for my chat with Joe McNally. That's all. Take care. Enjoy your photography. I'll see you out there.